Welcome to the Making of the Islamic World. I'm Chris Creighton. If you're hearing this through the Ottoman History Podcast website, the Making of the Islamic World is a series of podcasts intended for the university classroom. With each episode, we provide a bibliography of readings associated with the topic, as well as other readings and activities great for group discussion or for simply exploring on your own. In our last episode, we talked about the Mongol conquests and their consequences for the Islamic world. This episode is focused on the one Islamic empire to defeat the Mongols, the Mamluk Sultanate of Cairo. We'll be learning about how this surprisingly enduring state emerged out of a period of intense political upheaval in the Islamic world. But then we'll be going beyond the story of the Mamluks and their sultanate to explore the subject of urban life, especially in Cairo, which during the early 14th century was one of the largest cities in the world, eclipsing any city of its time outside China. So if you'll recall, we never really finished the story of the Mongols, at least not the part about what halted their expansion into the former Abbasid lands. Nor did we talk about the final destruction of the Crusader states. The force that both halted the Mongol advance and defeated the Crusaders once and for all was none other than the Mamluks. The Mamluk is effectively the Turco-Mongol horse archer on steroids. It's taking the steppe tradition and then perfecting it in the lab. Throughout our series, one of the threads we followed with Josh White is the practice of military slavery and how it related to politics. The term Mamluk, referring to an owned or enslaved person, is synonymous with the increasingly institutionalized practice of military slavery in the Islamic world. Slave soldiers, in some respects, a misnomer once we're getting to the 12th and 13th centuries, because we are talking about people who have been enslaved and trained, but are ultimately manumitted by tradition. If we think back, yes, all the way to the Abbasids, right, the employment of slave soldiers becomes a critical part of the administration and military practice of basically every polity that we deal with. That was just as true for the Fatimids. The Fatimids obtained enslaved people to use for military forces from every direction. So they acquired enslaved Africans who were trained and employed as infantry, and they, just as those before them had, acquire Turks from the steppes north of the Black Sea and north of the Caspian, um, Kipchak Turks in this case, to be trained to be mounted archers. And the Fatimids rely on them, the Ayyubids after that rely upon them, in every instance, right, we're still dealing with these dynasties that are, in many respects, kind of alien, and they enforce their will and maintain their borders through the acquisition of Mamluks. You're talking about children acquired from the Kipchak steppes, traded by, in some instances, Mongols, or, or depending on what period we're talking about, or Genoese slave traders brought to Egypt, where they will be educated and trained within barracks. And the Mamluk, who in this instance, in its ideal type, is a Turk, will already have kind of baseline abilities, perhaps in horsemanship, and some skill, perhaps, with, with a bow. 
Uh, but the barracks experience is designed to create kind of the ultimate warrior, really, to take all those, those qualities that are thought to be intrinsic in the child of the steppe and then to amplify them and to make them compatible with the most sophisticated military techniques and ideas of the day. Much in the same way we'd think about kind of the European training for, for knights. It's not dissimilar in certain respects. Training with a bow, training in horsemanship, training in military sciences of every form, training with a lance, training with a mace, training with a sword. The things that these kids were expected to be able to do by their late teens are kind of amazing when you think about it. The ability to ride around in a hippodrome at full gallop, launching arrow after arrow at a ball tethered to a string from a very high stick. And to hit that thing. If you think back to that game, you know, you play on the playground where there's a ball attached to a stick and you hit the ball and it swings around and then the other kid hits the ball and swings around the other way. Imagine doing that with arrows launched from your horse while at a full gallop around a stadium. They could do that. Mamluk mounted archers were trained to fire three aimed shots in one and a half seconds. Right? If we have any fans of Lord of the Rings out there, that's Legolas-style stuff. Absolutely nuts what they could do. Right? These guys were the creme de la creme, which meant, of course, then, that they cost a tremendous amount of money to acquire, a tremendous amount of money to train. They were the backbone. They were certainly not the entire army, but they were the backbone of it. And their loyalties were, by and large, to, on the one hand, they're barracks mates. Uh, the term is, you know, chustash, right? You, we speak of kind of group solidarity amongst the barracks mates as chustashia, and that's quite critical. Those are the horizontal loyalties to the people who came up with you in the barracks from, you know, a young age all the way to uh, your kind of graduation, the barracks, and your manumission. And then vertical loyalties to whoever your master was. If your master rises in the ranks, so do you. And what we encounter under the Ayyubids, and then under, during the kind of Mamluk period itself, uh, is that Mamluks buy Mamluks, right? That military command is from people who are reproducing themselves, people who have gone through this experience and then reproduced it below. And what all this means then, though, is that if a Mamluk's loyalty is, on the one hand, to those who trained with him, and on the other hand, to the person who once owned him and educated and trained him, the direction we're missing here is to the dynasty that actually may employ their master or their master's master. You can see here, just as we did when we talked about the Abbasids, the seeds for this whole thing to, to ultimately lead to the overthrow of the dynasties that relied upon them. And that is precisely what happens. Not entirely by design, actually, but that is what happens. The founding figures of the Mamluk Sultanate were in large part formerly enslaved soldiers. But perhaps the most significant founder, while also originally enslaved, was not a soldier at all, but rather a fascinating woman named Shajara Dur. Here's Zoe Griffith. Shajara Dur is a really interesting figure in Islamic history. She's one of a very small handful of women uh, to rule a state, and the only one to not have been born to the royal family that was already in power. She marks a kind of unwitting, I would say, bridge between the uh, Ayyubids in Egypt and the Mamluk Sultanate, which, you know, is 
essentially the strongest, most powerful uh, medieval Islamic state um, of them all. But I think it's hard to get a sense of her real agency because the historians through whom we know about her were not especially sympathetic to this female figure in power. Shajar ad-Dur took power during a period of political crisis in Egypt. The Ayyubids had greatly reduced the political power of the Crusader states in the region, but during the mid-13th century, the Ayyubid Sultan, Asaleh, was confronted with a Crusader invasion of Egypt led by Louis IX of France. Shajar ad-Dur was his wife at the time. But so, you know, she was brought to Ayyubid Egypt as the rest of the Mamluks, essentially, as a uh, enslaved woman and became the favorite concubine of uh, the Ayyubid ruler, Asaleh Ayyub, sometime in the 1230s. The Ayyubid Sultan dies? Kind of in the course of the Seventh Crusade in 1249. So Asaleh Ayyub is dead. Uh, There's an invading army on the doorstep of Cairo. And it's left to the last Ayyubid Sultan's widow, and or not the last, but nearly the last uh, Ayyubid Sultan's widow, and his chief Mamluks to organize the defense. She and her kind of allies among the uh, Mamluk military establishment are able to conspire to keep his death a secret. They think this is kind of in the best interest of the state. There's a imminent attack in uh, Damietta from the from the Crusaders, and so she rules for for a period of time uh, with the support of the commander of the Mamluk armies and the chief eunuch of the palace, and she's issuing decrees with his forged signature on it. She's having meals prepared for him as if he's alive, you know, saying that he's ill and can't come out, but in fact he's dead. They call in the heir, this guy named Turan Shah. Uh, he's declared sultan. They, you know, declare that the that the previous sultan has died. Then they all together defeat the crusaders. And you think, okay, happily ever after, we can go back to business. But, you know, the Ayyubid enterprise had always been fairly disunified. Shajar Adur's alliance with the Mamluks, so, you know, they're all from the same area. They share a background. They really kind of have a a rapport. Within the Mamluk command, there are some extremely powerful and strong loyalties. They just happen not to be directed towards the dynasty as a whole. And so for those who had been Mamluks of Asal Ayyub, they had been loyal to him. They don't know who this Turan Shah guy is. He's not their problem. The son of Asal Ayyub is so detestable in his... Uh, in his behavior once he becomes the Ayyubid Sultan, that the Mamluks assassinate Turan Shah in 1250 and install Shajaradur as a monarch. And this is a really, really unique act because, you know, rather than sort of acting as regent for a younger son, rather than sort of filling in while waiting for a um, a younger male figure to reach maturity, she really has the support of the Ayyubid Mamluk establishment to rule in her own right. The problem is, and this is a a theme throughout Mamluk history, that there are always a number of factions and competing interests. So the Mamluks of a given ruler 
might have a very different set of interests than um, another sort of household of Mamluks. And so in Shajaradur's case, she has the support of uh, Asalih Ayub's Mamluks, but she does not have the support of the Ayyubids who uh, are still in power in Syria, uh, a number of um, other Ayyubid supporters in Cairo, and the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad. The Caliph in Baghdad, with not many years left ahead of him, says, did you run out of men? There's a probably apocryphal letter that al-Makrizi writes about, um, in which the the caliph is kind of informed that Shajaradur is in power, and he writes to Egypt and says, if there's no man among you who can serve, just tell me and I'll send you one. It becomes a kind of unworkable situation. So what is the solution for Shajaradur wishing to maintain authority? She marries one of her late husband's Mamluks, Ibak. He becomes the first sultan of the new Mamluk sultanate. For about seven years, they coexist. Who knows what their actual relationship was like? She continued to be perceived as a threat uh, by Ibek, and a threat that ultimately was kind of borne out because in 1257, she ordered her supporters to murder him in the bath. And when that's discovered, she is imprisoned. And then uh, soon thereafter, she is, you know, dragged out of um, dragged out of her place of imprisonment, stripped naked, beaten to death, and uh, thrown off the walls of the citadel. We don't know anything from Shajaradur's perspective. There's a lot of kind of titillating detail that comes through in the histories about her. Uh, Al-Makrizi is writing 80 years after these events, but although this transfer of power between the Ayyubid uh, dynasty and the Mamluk Sultanate kind of takes place from, it's like one husband, her husband, and then this 80 days of, of female reign, and then she's kind of married off to the, uh, the first sultan of the Mamluk Sultanate. Um, I think her agency probably went far beyond what her kind of forced marriages effectively would suggest. Um, but yeah, she's a pretty incredible figure, and there was a lot of a lot of intrigue involved. The story of Shajaradur is one example of how the Mamluk Sultanate was born out of the climate of intense political turmoil in the Islamic world during the mid-13th century, and the Mamluks kept battling with each other at the top, even while facing powerful enemies from the outside. Then it's time to go fight the Mongols, who have at this point already destroyed Baghdad. It's 1258, right? We are now some nine years after... Uh, the defeat of the Crusaders, eight, nine years after the defeat of the Crusaders, and the Mongols are on their way. They have sent emissaries. The Mamluk, who is currently standing, Kutuz, has their heads nailed to one of the gates of the city, which sets up the conflict to come. As we learned in our previous installment, killing a Mongol emissary usually meant a lot more Mongols were on the way. And indeed, the Mongol and Mamluk armies would square off at a place called Ein Jalut, located between Acre and Jerusalem. But the Mamluks would fare far better than any of their predecessors. I, I want to say a little something about Ein Jalut and why it is the Mamluks win. Up until this point, the Mongols have been and have certainly seemed to be unstoppable, haven't they? What do the Mongols have going for them? Tons and tons of people. 
all unified under careful command who seems to have a pretty good idea of what they want to do. If the Mamluks had had to face off against the entirety of what the Mongols could put in the field, or even half of it, if they had had to face off against 200,000 Mongol warriors, they would have been utterly and completely screwed. There would have been no saving them. Doesn't matter how good they are. What then is different is the fact that Syria doesn't support Mongol armies in the field the way Anatolia might or other parts of Central Asia might. There's just not enough grass, right? When a Tumen goes into the field, that's 10,000 men, that comes with probably five times as many women and children alongside it and other non-combatants, and maybe a million animals. So when the Mongol armies invaded Syria following the destruction of Baghdad in 1258, they came with six Tumens. Before the spring of 1260, they would have had withdrawn five of them. There's just not enough grass to field the millions of animals, literally millions of animals of horses, five or six to every warrior, and sheep that had come along with the army. It just wasn't going to work. They had to go somewhere else. Some of them go to Anatolia, some of them go back to Central Asia, but they can't hang out there. So if you think now about the limitations in grass and water, is the Mongols are far more limited. And then we start to see this as a situation of armies that are more evenly matched in numbers. We see how the differences in t- battlefield techniques and abilities play out on the ground. And so what's different here is that the Mongol mounted archer with his composite recurved bow and his no armor or very little armor on a maybe 600-pound horse rides into battle at a gallop firing arrows into the air. He's only going to be in a position to actually fire directly at his target and aim shot at about 30 yards. The Mamluks are on 1,000-pound fodder-fed war horses. Not these little ponies. These things are huge. They have been trained to carry an armored mounted warrior. They've been trained to carry armor themselves. Both the horses and the warrior on them are armored. Mongol archers were trained to fire at a standstill, not riding into battle. Before the Mongols could even fire a single effective shot, the Mamluks could hit them three times. Once you're at close range, a Mongol horse archer maybe had a club. A Mamluk warrior was carrying an addition to his bow and his many arrows, which he was effective at until very short range, a sword, a mace, a lance, and a ton of armor. At that point, once it becomes hand-to-hand, it's not really an even fight at all. What we find is that the Mamluks, so long as they're on their home turf and not completely overwhelmed numerically, are very difficult to beat. One of the things that's kind of worth remarking about the Mamluks then is that when we think about the Sultanate, and it becomes you know this thing that develops almost accidentally, right? Just because an Ayyubid Sultan died at the wrong moment, and then the Mamluks kind of determined they didn't really need one, at least not one of those, is that it becomes a rather conservative enterprise. What do I mean by conservative? That the Mamluks will reconstruct Ayyubid domains pushing out the Mongols on the one end, pushing out the Crusaders in the other, in their first 30 years of existence, right? Between Anjalut 
and the operations against the Crusaders that, con- that conclude in 1291 with the fall of the last of the Crusader states. That kind of reunifies Egypt and Syria and the Hejaz under the Mamluks that creates effectively what the Fatimids had ruled after the taking of Egypt. The Mamluks really don't use their army much after that. There are very few conquests. They do not go as many of their contemporaries or their successors would to try to take over the world. The Mamluks, having developed the kind of perfect military machine, never seem to want to use it. Why? Well, having developed the perfect military machine and having derived much of the legitimacy from its success, why risk it? That's part of it. It costs so much to train a perfect Mamluk warrior that any losses are devastating to some degree. Having derived all this legitimacy from success in battle, defeat would be devastating. And also, because this does ultimately take the form of something like a military dictatorship, nobody at the upper echelons wants to be gone from Cairo for too long, lest somebody accidentally die and miss the power struggle that will follow. And so the Mamluks become quite defensive once they've kind of assembled this, this territory that is itself reasonably stable at its borders. Egypt and Syria go really well together. Once they have that, they kind of stop. While power will often be aggregated in the hands of this or that person who's kind of risen through the strength of their personality and of their bonds with others in their khutashia, there will actually be a fair bit of formal stability, right? That the, the Mamluks, on the one hand, will very quickly put up a puppet refugee from the Abbasids, We have refugees arriving from the Abbasids within a few years of the fall of Baghdad. And from then on out, you had a puppet, quote-unquote, Abbasid caliph, not taken very seriously outside of Cairo, but somebody to invest whoever the Mamluk Sultan was with some measure of legitimacy, since every one of these Mamluks was a product of somewhere else. They're all alien. They're all foreign. Many of them, again, are Kipchak Turks, we get some Mongols among them, and then uh, by the end of the 14th century, we're talking about Circassians, who still will learn Turkish. Um, all alien, their children can become bureaucrats, they can become authors. Many of the, the, the great writers in the Mamluk period, writing in Arabic, of course, are the children of Mamluks, but they themselves cannot be, will never be Mamluks. I think one of the things that's really interesting about the Mamluks is that if you were to look at it sort of from the ground, from the short-term view, it looks really horrifically unstable. There's lots of coups, fair number of puppet rulers, people vying for power, sometimes violently, assassinations, people being driven to exile and then coming back. But then... If we take a step back, is we realize that the Mamluk Sultanate is the longest-lasting, most stable polity we've encountered. That the Abbasid Caliphate existed on paper for five centuries, but ruled effectively for only one. The Mamluks have 250 solid years in control of Egypt and Syria united, with borders that are extremely stable, 
very few military defeats, very few expensive military adventures, remarkably consistent in its institutions, and ended only because they were defeated and absorbed by the Ottomans. Had the Ottomans decided not to invade and try to, to bring them, uh, you know, defeat them, how much longer might the Mamluks have lasted of their own accord, not, not messed with? It's impossible to say. I mentioned before that the Mamluks were, in some respects, quite conservative in their, their attitudes to governance, and this, for better or worse, applied to their view uh, towards firearms as well, having created the perfect warrior in the barracks. In fact, the Mamluks were beginning to adopt firearms. They were simply a little bit too late, and the ones they had were neither numerous enough nor good enough. Uh, and they were not prepared for the amount of treachery that they encountered with the Ottomans. So on the one hand, the Mamluks are not immune to the same sort of legitimacy issues and the need for solutions as their predecessors, right? They are, they are not the first of kind of slave soldier origin to rule in the history that we're discussing. They are the first, though, to make that kind of passage of power consistent, the system reproduces itself. It's not immune to outside pressures. Most important among those are the fact that the Mamluks are initially Kipchak Turks. Well, they start to run out of Kipchak Turks that they can take. On the one hand, Islamization makes Turks who can be enslavable uh, difficult to acquire. And on the other hand, the Mamluks' uh, enmities with the polities that could have controlled access to that reservoir of people, likewise, make it impossible for them to acquire more Turks. So they start getting Circassians. And so the, the Mamluk enterprise becomes a multi-ethnic affair. And by 1382, we are no longer talking about a Mamluk sultanate run by Kipchak Turks and, and those of Turco-Mongol extraction, what we now kind of refer to as the Bahri uh, Mamluk sultanate, because... Um, the barracks that those Turks had been trained on was on Rhoda, an island in the middle of the Nile. Um, we instead talk about the Burji, the, the, the tower group of Mamluks. We speak of it sometimes as a dynasty, but it's, of course, not. But this tower that we're speaking of is attached to the citadel of Cairo, uh, where those Mamluks had been trained. These things were separate. And yet, again, we can talk about some continuity. The greatest dis destructive force here, the thing that accelerated this change and the shift was the Black Death. Uh, barracks, as it happens, are great breeders of disease. And the Mamluks suffered terribly, as did you know, all the people of Cairo and Egypt and, and the Middle East more broadly during uh, the, the plague and its recurrences. But all this ends up being quite stable. The bureaucracy can be peopled by the children of the Mamluks. The Mamluks themselves, again, are alien they might learn rudimentary Arabic. They might uh, certainly learn some about Islam and are patrons of uh, the arts and especially of architecture. But they can leave the business of ruling to bureaucrats who are you know, part and parcel of this older tradition of bureaucracy in the region. But it's a great opportunity to have their kids go to the madrasas of the area, which they found in great numbers. Right, so you're a Mamluk Sultan. Well, you take all that wealth you've gotten from extracting taxes from the people uh, to build a madrasa, endow its professorships, and then send your kids there. How much have things changed? The Mamluks quite carefully and intentionally patronize 
all four schools of Islamic jurisprudence, which at this point are still active. So they're about getting legitimacy from as many different directions as possible. Um, and thereby maintain a fairly stable state tradition which can withstand the shocks that come both from fights at the top and from some of the external pressures. And they're buoyed, too, by the wealth that comes from, on the one hand, the Nile and, and the lands under the control, that agricultural wealth, but also, too, from the tremendous amount of wealth that comes from the spice trade and from their control of it. And all that allows the Mamluks to really maintain the most stable state that we've seen by far. So let's talk more about what the Mamluks built, especially in their capital of Cairo. In the fourth installment of the series, we talked about the foundation of Cairo as the palace city of the Fatimid dynasty. But it was really in the Mamluk period that Cairo came into its own. Here's Zoe Griffith again. I mean, if you visit Cairo today, the, the Islamic city as it exists is effectively a Mamluk city. But the Mamluk city was rather deliberately superimposed on uh, an Ayyubid city that was deliberately uh, built to kind of destroy the vestiges of a Shiite Fatimid city. Cairo, I mean, its Islamic architecture is extremely impressive, very monumental. This is the finest kind of iteration of Mamluk architecture, and that's because the last time that Cairo was the capital of an Islamic state was during the Mamluk Sultanate. A lot of the features of Mamluk architecture that become uh, especially kind of unique and well-defined and uh, ubiquitous in, you know, this very monumental architecture in Cairo have their origins in the transition from Ayyubid to Mamluk uh, rule and can be seen in the uh, madrasa, the uh, Islamic school, and mausoleum of the last, or one of the last Ayyubid sultans, Asalah Ayyub, and his uh, wife, and the kind of transition figure between the Ayyubid and Mamluk periods, Shajar Adur. So during his final years of rule, Asalah Ayyub um, had this m- monumental madrasa built uh, that deliberately kind of destroyed part of the old Fatimid palace that had been located on this prime real estate in uh, Bain al-Qasrain, in the center of uh, what is today Islamic Cairo. Um, And this building is really important for Islamic architectural history uh, and kind of foreshadows a lot of features of Mamluk architecture um, for several reasons. First, it was the first institution, the first madrasa built with uh, four iwans. And an iwan is a, a kind of I mean, it's a gigantic niche in the four, in one of the four walls of a madrasa. Each of the four walls of this kind of square courtyard plan had an iwan. And the remarkable thing about these four iwan madrasas is that they were intended to each house one of the four madhabs of Sunni Islam. So uh, rather than kind of aligning himself with one or another madhab, this is a a symbol of overarching Sunni authority, that here in Cairo one can come and kind of learn all of the uh, orthodox forms of Sunni Islam. So that becomes 
a really important feature of uh, later Mamluk madrasas as well. Another really important feature of Saleh Ayyub's complex built in the 1240s is his mausoleum. Uh, and so the tomb of Saleh Ayyub was actually built after his death, built by his widow, Shajaradur. You know, in its day, it's destroyed now, but in its day it was extremely grand, um, you know, enormous structure, marble floors, huge marble uh, mihrab decorated with uh, what's called ablak, which is alternating uh, light and dark uh, marble patterns, which also becomes a really, maybe the most recognizable uh, element of uh, Mamluk decorative architecture that can be seen, obviously, in Cairo, but throughout uh, Bilad Hashem as well. You know, the, I mean, more important than the decorative features is that this building launches the extremely common and very uh, symbolic and significant Mamluk practice of attaching the builder's tomb to his foundation complex. So probably the most important function of the Mamluk architecture of Cairo in particular was that the sultans and the kind of high-level officials within the Mamluk uh, establishment, almost all of them tried to leave a monumental uh, statement in the kind of heart of the city. These were primarily public works, things like madrasas, uh, mosques, hospitals, soup kitchens, you know, really important civic institutions, meeting the needs of people for education, for healthcare, for food and water. One really good example, and maybe a less sort of overwhelmingly extravagant example of this kind of um, public work was what was called the Sibyl Kuteb, which was a two-story building on the top, the uh, Kuteb, an elementary school for uh, the boys of the neighborhood to go and you know learn Quran and learn other basic skills. And on the bottom, the bottom floor would be, you know, not an enormous, but a significant public fountain, which provided a steady stream of drinking water throughout the day. And this was obviously a, a really vital charitable institution for a city like Cairo. So what we see with the uh, madrasa of Asalah Ayyub and Shajaradur's uh, affixing of his tomb mausoleum to that structure, this is the beginning of a very significant new practice that continues throughout the Mamluk period in which the founder of a large charitable complex attaches his tomb to that complex and has his ultimately has his body interred within the complex that carries his name. Uh, and the architectural historian D. Fairchild Ruggles has noted that this established a new relationship between the deceased patron and his major public work that was his most visible legacy. Uh, and the reason that this became such a significant and widespread practice um, under the Mamluks is almost certainly because of the the nature of the Mamluk state itself, in which, you know, hereditary dynasties were strongly discouraged, uh, in which really the only sure legacy that 
a sultan had, no matter how powerful or how wealthy he was during his reign, was kind of the monuments that he could leave behind him that bore his name and that ultimately like held his very body after his death. And these were buildings that were intended to be used by the public. Um, they were not royal buildings. They were not elite buildings. They were integral to the urban fabric and integral to social and educational, intellectual life in Cairo. Um, these were displays of generosity and piety during the founder's lifetime. So everyone could see these, you know, enormous, magnificent uh, buildings being constructed and kind of wonder at the wealth and power of the sultan. And then, you know, these are public buildings that people are intended to to be grateful for and to use um, long after the sultan's lifetime. And, and as you mentioned, um, these are underpinned by pious endowments, waqfs, um, in which the revenues of, you know, various shops and um, ateliers and um, maybe customs offices throughout the city would contribute to the upkeep of these institutions. So there was a a very long-standing relationship that would be established between, you know, many segments of the city, the merchant class and the artisan class, uh, paying rents to these institutions that maybe uh, provide services to the poor and to students, et cetera, et cetera. So the heart of Cairo, which had been, a you know, originally a Fatimid city, um, a royal city in which maybe the poor or the working class were held at arm's length. Um, a lot of that city is destroyed, demolished, and built over to become the heart of the Mamluk city. In particular, I mean, there are some very impressive and kind of especially interesting examples during the uh, Bahri Mamluk period, the, the first 150 years or so of Mamluk rule, uh, the Madrasa Hospital Mausoleum Complex of Sultan Qalaun, uh, which was completed in 1285, it's really central to the rest of the Mamluk city that, that is built up, um, but it was built directly over the ruins of the Fatimid Palace. Um, and there are some reports that say, uh, I mean, it was built extremely quickly in like a year and a half and there are reports that say that um, they used Mongol POW labor to to construct these monuments. His son, this is one of the few kind of hereditary uh, moments in which author Mamluk authority was passed from father to son. Uh, a Nasser Muhammad Qalaun, his complex, which was completed in 1303. It's not quite as impressive as that of his father, but its most impressive feature is this enormous marble gothic portal that was literally ripped out of a crusader church in the city of Acre uh, after the Mamluk defeat of the last crusader stronghold in Palestine, transported back to Cairo, installed in the facade of this complex um, after 1291. And then the mosque madrasa complex of Sultan Hassan, which was completed in 1363, I mean, it's utterly enormous. The outside of it is like its own fortress. It was built right at the foot of the citadel. 
um, of the Cairo Citadel and during periods of unrest, Al-Makrizi says that, you know, rebels and their supporters would like confine or, you know, uh, barricade themselves in the mosque of Sultan Hassan, climb up to the roof, try and launch stuff at the citadel or just kind of use it as a base for a very visible statement of opposition to the reigning sultan. But this complex is especially remarkable um, for being, I mean, it's the largest uh, of these complexes in Cairo. Uh, It's the most expensive of these complexes ever, or the most expensive mosque ever constructed in medieval Cairo. And this was all built uh, while Egypt was being ravished by waves and waves of plague of the Black Death in the mid 14th century. And um, I mean, one of the one of the funding sources for this just mind-boggling, mind-bogglingly um, costly complexes was uh, the confiscation of the wealth of the emirs and officials and merchants who died in the course of the plague and had their uh, estates confiscated. And that's how these systems worked. The uh, Slaves of the Sultan, their property belongs to Beit al-Mal, to the you know, public treasury. Those funds went directly into the construction of this complex, along with the extortion of uh, the Sultan's subjects. And so it's kind of fitting that this complex also becomes this site of, I think, opposition during times of uh, strife between the ruling Mamluk establishment and uh you know, opposing factions or even perhaps um, urban, you know, aspects of urban society that were dissatisfied. While the Mamluks were adept at finding ways to stay in power, their rule was not uncontested. Rather than outside forces, one of the main sources of pressure on the Mamluk rulers was their own populace in the growing city of Cairo. Amina El-Bendiri is a professor at the American University in Cairo. We chatted about her work on the Mamluk period and the ways in which protest was a feature of the urban environment. Mamluk Cairo is a very crowded place, a very noisy place, uh, not an easy place to survive in as, as I imagine it. Uh, a place, of course, that's dominated somehow by, by the Mamluks and their citadel. But even though the citadel is perched up on a hill and, and overlooks the city, uh, it is not so isolated from the city and its people are part of the fabric of the city. And there is a lot of interaction and going back and forth. And I think in daily life also there was more interaction than we sometimes assume. Certainly there were barriers, you know, these were the military, they come from different backgrounds, many of them weren't, you know, very versant in Arabic probably, but on the other hand, they uh, were very much part of the city, soldiers coming, uh, uh, playing different roles in city life, whether in terms of their investment in the market and their uh, uh, the roles they play in the economy, or even in cultural life, their involvement in Sufi tariqas and Sufi life, for example, uh, the investments they did in the forms of uh, caravansarais or madrasas or hospitals or what have you that they built that were very much part of the fabric of the city. 
but it was also a place that's that was open to foreigners open to people coming from outside full of visitors uh, people passing on their way to the pilgrimage people coming to study uh, people coming uh, to get some treatment so a noisy a noisy place a place where a lot was happening a place that's very uh, vibrant and full of life crowded uh, and I think it's people were part of, you know, it's not, were part of that story, also on the political level. So even though we had this citadel and the life of the citadel and the politics of the citadel and the factions and the regiments uh, and so on, those outside the citadel also played important roles in the functioning of the city and in the politics of the city. We're used to thinking of the ulama in particular as playing these important roles, they're there because we know more about them, they occupy important positions in the historiography, they write about themselves and they write about their friends so we can't avoid them, but also others played roles because the city would not be a city without those others. The market would not be a market without the tradesmen and the craftsmen and the buyers and the sellers and so on. As Cairo grew, the boundary between the rulers and their subjects became more porous. I think porous is a good adjective to use here because there is more interaction. Many people speak of popularization during that time period, and it means different things and multiple things at the same time, obviously. Um, Part of what it means is that sort of interaction between the elite and the non-elite. It means people who are from the Mamluk classes or who are awled al-nas being incorporated in Uh, the life of the city, being scholars or merchants or what have you. Uh, It means craftsmen uh, composing poetry and attending reading uh, sessions, for instance, in mosques and hanging around with the ulama. Uh, It means uh, Mamluks composing poetry in Arabic and in Turkish and so on. So I think porous is uh, is a good word to use here and it gives us a sense of an opening up in social space, the rise perhaps also of new groups, their mobility, their social mobility, their visibility in the sources. We hear of people from different backgrounds. Uh, Some of them come to occupy positions of authority in the state. Um, And this is sometimes frowned upon. You know, not everybody likes that at the time at least, but it's something that's happening. People from craft backgrounds getting positions of authority in the bureaucracy, for instance. This is happening more often. And that sometimes, I think, caused tension. The theme of protest provides a window onto the social life of Mamluk Cairo. From the market to the mosque, Cairo was full of public spaces where different classes of society were in contact. The markets, certainly, and there are many of them, and many streets where the markets are held, uh, and uh, especially... The, on the main thoroughfares, so the main, uh, the Saliba and the main areas leading into or up to the, the citadel, these were areas of interaction. Um, the important madrasas uh, and, for instance, uh, in one of the, after one of the riots, for example, uh, in the 15th century, uh, the Qadis were told to go and sit together and find a solution and come up with a solution. And they met in the Salihiyya Madrasa, for example. Uh, and people were told that people were hanging on by the windows waiting to find out and to get the news from what was hap- about what was happening inside. So you can imagine that on the street there were these congregations and uh, these madrasas 
authors also, some of them at least occasionally played roles that were beyond simply uh, teaching or university spaces, but that were spaces for people to meet, to hold meetings in the sense of holding meetings, but also to hold public town hall meetings, for example. The foot of the citadel is another area. Uh, the Mu'attam mountains uh, are, uh, or hills are also another area where people would uh, sometimes, sometimes, you know, you would get uh, meeting places or riots uh, uh, happening there. So I think uh, areas that w- would lead to the citadel or would be seen from the citadel were important. Um, mosques and madrasas were, uh, were important uh, and could be meeting spaces often. Uh, processional routes were important. And again, this is where... Uh, the Saliba is very important, and the route uh, leading into and out of the city uh, was important. Uh, areas that would be used for uh, uh, prayers, for instance, so uh, public space that would be used for the prayers and the feasts uh, would also be places where people would meet up. The riots and protests of Mamluk Cairo had various origins and took many forms, but often the origins of protests were economic. I think the overarching principle is perceptions of injustice. Uh, And, of course, every society faces its share of injustice, definitely. Uh, But there seems to have been more of that going on and uh, protesting uh, in various ways, including rioting, was one way to redress some of these injustices. One way that society and groups in society resorted to, to deal with these injustices. So things, of course, uh, or causes that uh, include economic issues uh, or economic burdens. And that was a time period, of course, when uh, the Mamluk system was facing a lot of pressure. You've mentioned the Black Death, uh, of course, uh, of the mid-14th century, uh, but there were series of plagues that followed afterwards in uh, the remaining of the second part of the 14th century and the 15th century. And all in all, their cumulative effect uh, seems to have been drastic. Uh, At least in the mid-14th century, uh, there was a significant loss of population. And, of course, there are various estimates for that, but, you know, some of them go as far as 20% of the population perishing. And this is a lot. In, uh, this also meant that significant areas of land were not farmed, so it affected the production of food and it, it, it affected, in particular, grain. Uh, and so the grain market and the grain trade is um, one issue uh, that was under pressure, one area of the economy that was under pressure periodically. Uh, and people objected, made themselves heard, made their voices heard when the prices were not fair or when grain was not readily available on the market. The period, yes, did witness occasional famines, but it doesn't seem to have been the prime cause of protest. So it's not hunger and famine per se that caused a lot of protest. It's really the perception that the grain market is not being run fairly, is not being managed efficiently, that some people are unjustly profiting uh, from the grain trade. Boaz Shoshan has spoken of the moral economy uh, of uh, that, that period or of the crowds in that period by looking at the protests. And it seems to be that people realized what would constitute a fair practice, what would constitute a fair price. And when that was not upheld, they objected and they acted in ways that somehow either brought the price down or made more grain available on the market or somehow managed the situation. 
we need to remember also that grain was more than just bread. Grain was a currency in this economy. Um, I don't know if you've mentioned this uh, before in, in, in your class and in your course, but uh, one of the characteristics of the Mamluk system was that the Mamluk emirs, the Mamluk officers, were paid through landed estates and they were given iqtas, which were basically the right to collect taxes from certain landed estates or urban estates. Sometimes also uh, they were given, for instance, the right to collect customs from a certain port. Uh, but typically these were lands and they had the right to collect taxes from the, those lands as a means of getting their salary, which meant that in many cases they received their salary in grain. So, of course, they had to then convert this grain to money. Uh, and so that made them um, the main grain merchants or among the main players in the grain economy. And they profited from it. So that meant that they were playing more than one role. Uh, and on the one hand, they were representatives of the regime that was providing law and order and justice and should provide at least um, an honorable life for good Muslim subjects of the Sultan so that they would live an honorable life, an ethical life, so that people would not have to steal or resort to criminal activity. Uh, it was part of their um, obligation, part of the Sultan's obligation to make it possible for people to live a good life. So they were responsible for that on the one hand, but on the other, they were also uh, profiting from uh, the grain trade. And when things weren't quite balanced, when the economy wasn't working in a way that was perceived as moral, people objected. So whether because grain was being hoarded or uh, uh, prices were manipulated, that was often a cause for, for concern and for rioting. I asked Professor Albandari to tell me about one of the most memorable protests she studied. She chose a late 15th century conflict between the Mamluks of the citadel and the shoemakers of the market. Because the Mamluks derived their wealth from taxation on various goods, they often needed to move those goods in order to convert agrarian wealth into monetary wealth. In this case, the Mamluks were trying to force Kyrene shoemakers to buy their leather. So it was in 1471, and uh, that was during the reign of uh, Qait Bey. At the time, the Mamluks forced the sale of leather on the shoemakers of Bin al-Qasrin uh, and of Saliba. So there were two markets that uh, had to deal with this, had to deal with uh, uh, the forced sale of, uh, of leather. One of the groups, so the merchants of Bin al-Qasrin, they, you know, they went ahead, they didn't like this, but they went ahead, uh, got their share of the leather and paid for it and so on. The others, the other group from Saliba, they, you know, they were more crafty. So they didn't pay right away. They took the leather and they said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll pay you very soon. Uh, but then they went and they organized an interesting type of protest because uh, they went up the hill and they situated themselves on a place uh, where they estimated that the sultan who was in the citadel and who would be overseeing uh, doing his mazalim session that day would be able to see them or at least hear them. Uh, it's, you know, it's quite colorful. So they cause a commotion. Maybe they were shouting slogans. We have to imagine that there was some form of noise happening at the top of the hill. And, you know, certainly the Sultan says, you know, asks, you know, what is all of this commotion about? And uh, his uh, agents and his people have to uh, actually, you know, come up with an answer. He calls for them uh, uh, and a negotiation then uh, ensues. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the levy is canceled. The 
the tarh or the forced sale that they were subjected to uh, is cancelled. So I, I always remember this story because it shows me several things. On the one hand, it shows that there were different ways of, of dealing with matters and not all merchants are the same or not all groups are the same. And, you know, we can imagine that very often people just went on with it, even if, it, even if they weren't very convinced. I try to imagine that maybe there was some form of leadership that we're not told about, but that maybe there was among uh, the shoemakers of Saliba, somebody who was... Uh, a strategist or, you know, who was argumentative or who wanted an activist in today's terms, maybe, and who was like, you know, let's try to do something about it. There are also uh, people who are aware of who decides on matters and how matters are done in the citadel. So in that case, they didn't waste their time fighting with the soldiers on the street who came to, co- to collect the tarh. Uh, they know that, you know, you need to go to the top if you're going to get a resolution to your issue. Uh, so they try and reach the top and they understand the sultan to be the top. This is recurrent. So the the sultans appear as the judges of last resort in many of these protests and in many of the texts. People understand the system and understand that uh, ultimately it's the sultan who can decide or who gets to decide. And they know about the calendar of the of the citadel. They know about the different areas in the citadel. Uh, when we spoke about how um, the center of power is not was not that isolated from the city, this is this is an example of that. Uh, yes, it is the center of power, but it is perceived, it is acknowledged. There is something that is known about it down in the city. And they situate themselves in a way that makes them at least heard and perhaps seen inside the citadel as well. And on some level, it works. And on some level, that that levy is cancelled. Now, not all protests are as successful or as lucky. Uh, there was a 50% chance at least that the sultan would send out soldiers and beat them all up. Um, that was a risk they were taking. It wouldn't have been you know, unimaginable had he done that. But it was also a time of war. Uh, armies were preparing to go to war. Uh, you know, they needed uh, equipment for the soldiers. Uh, so, you know, managing with uh, the shoemakers and the people in the market was also in the interest of the Sultan. In some fashion, it was a way of placing checks on the autocratic nature of power. Uh, It was not institutionalized. uh, It was not uh, regular. It didn't always end well. But it meant that there were certain limitations on power. And I think that is a legacy that continues. Both the lack of clear institutionalization of this popular weight and energy, but also the realization that there are limitations on autocratic power. Sometimes medieval writers and medieval historians saw protest as a form of decline, but also as a form, as a sign of the breakdown of order and as a sign of the decline of the Mamluks themselves, that they were both unjust, but also unable to control some of these activities. But we don't have to inherit their perspective. 
So a little decentralization and a little loss of central control is not always a bad thing. Maybe it accelerated some of the economic crises that the Mamluks were facing because they were in, in I mean, some of their decisions were not necessarily just unjust, but they were ways of trying to deal with economic crises. But maybe also protests put a limit on where they would be getting this money that they're looking for. Other signs that are seen as corruption include this rise and fall of different social groups, various forms of social mobility. That's not necessarily a bad thing from our point of view. And that would continue in the centuries to come. Certainly, an opening up of space, uh, a rise of different social classes, limits on the the authority of central power, uh, on the autocracy of central power, that opened up space for other groups. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, when I first started working on this and people ask you at dinner parties what you're working on, and then I would say, oh, protests, urban protests in the 15th century. And a common comeback question, not always with cynicism, mind you, sometimes with a lot of, you know, genuine interest, but the comeback question was, were there any protests in Cairo in the 15th century? You know, so I think one of the main lessons of pre-modern politics is to look at nuances and to fill in blanks and to look at areas of human experience that might not be very flashy or very big. I think it's like with many historical studies, you learn a bit of humility. You There is an exercise in humility in studying the experiences of previous societies. And when you've experienced yourself uh, tumultuous events, then you can... Uh, somehow imagine how difficult it would have been maybe to risk standing, rioting on the top of Mu'attam Hills in 1471. You know, I'm not sure you can even do that now. So, you know, you come to appreciate some of the actions and the behavior of historical figures and actors in a different way. Now let's change gears to another lesser-known topic in medieval history. The past is, I mean, I don't want to sound cheesy, but it is, you know, it is limitless in the sense that if you go in with an open mind and you're ready to read anything, um, you're probably going to come across something pretty, pretty outrageous, but very fun. I recently chatted over Zoom with Christina Richardson, a professor at Queens College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. Her first book was entitled Difference and Disability in the Medieval Islamic World and her current project continues to study people on the would-be margins of medieval society, only they don't really seem that marginal at all. I've been working on basically a group who who refer to themselves as the Huraba, or in English, the Strangers, um, from at least the 13th century um, to the 16th century. And uh, what I find interesting about them is when they had their own language um, that they called scene. Um, they had their own traditions, had professional niches, but they are also probably people that we would refer to today as so-called gypsies. So it's really an interesting, what's interesting for me is that we now have the sources to go back, like their own documented sources in their own languages from the Middle Ages. The term ghoraba comes from the plural of the Arabic word gharib, 
as Professor Richardson noted, signifying a stranger or a wanderer or a person away from home or without roots. It's a semantically rich concept, but it's not necessarily an ethnic or racial designation. The Ghoraba and Richardson's study are associated with the migrations of the Roma peoples throughout the Islamic world and later into Europe. Linguistic and genetic evidence traces Roma origins to South Asia, but the timescale and different periods of their migration are not as well understood. It is clear that by the medieval period, Roma groups such as the Ghoraba of Cairo were common in the cities of the Islamic world. It's pretty far spread in the Islamic world. It's, I don't think there's a land that is untouched by, <laughs> by the Ghoraba in the Middle Ages, certainly. Though they shared a language and sense of kinship, the label of Ghoraba appears to refer more to a way of life. No, it is, it is not an ethnonym, so, so that is clear. That it, it seems to be a group of people who are, I mean, who are linked by basically a common way of life, and also by, so the way of life essentially being um, what are referred to as um, commercial nomads who are basically living off of a settled community. So they aren't forming their own separate um, self-sufficient communities, say they're farming or hunting, etc. But they're living off of mostly urban um, and semi-urban communities um, with professions like fortune telling, uh, begging, for instance, public entertainment. And also they form a class of medical providers. I mean, we hear mostly about, you know, the, the court physicians, etc. But you did have a class of you know, street dentists and ophthalmologists who would perform <laughs> surgeries or uh, procedures uh, for people in, you know, outside of mosques or in marketplaces or on the streets. Um, so what did unite them was a tribal dialect. They organized themselves like tribes. They did have a shared dialect. Um, they did live in particular neighborhoods named for the group, like Harat al-Ghuraba in, in major cities of West Asia and North Africa. There's constant fascination um, with this group. And on the other hand, sometimes the fascination turns into revulsion or it does turn into um, celebration. I mean, Ibn Khaldun, for instance, um, in his, you know, in, in the Muqaddimah, um, he has a section in which he talks about the fact that when he was in Cairo, he found, you know, the professions of the huraba, the tightrope walking, the animal training, right? Training cats and mice to, to play together and do things or snake charming. He found that a mark of civilization, um, that, the, that the crafts were so specialized and, off, and also not necessarily useful, um, that he found that a mark of higher civilization than his native North Africa. You also have the example that I mentioned earlier, the, in the 13th century, a man embedding himself with the Huraba because some patron he doesn't name wants to learn more about them. But then you also um, have mentions of them as being forced from cities at, from time to time. But what you find distrust of, though, are, th are those Huraba who do beg on the streets. That seems to be pretty constant. Um, that they use trickery, um, that they're deceiving honest people, naive people, um, from their gold coins and silver coins. Um, but yeah, so so it's it's hard to it's hard to encapsulate the impression. But also one thing again, they did inspire a lot of literature too. So the Makama literature we have about the wandering trickster, um, in every Makama you read, this person is a kharib, and it is it or it is stated at the beginning. So yeah, they they fascinated. They fascinated peoples of the past. The modern history of Roma people, or groups often referred to as gypsies, has left a minefield of misunderstanding for anyone who tries to look at the Mamluk period. That's because the Roma have been subject to persecution pretty much everywhere during the 19th and 20th century, 
especially in Europe, where they were targeted for extermination during the Holocaust. The image of the gypsy as a mysterious and transient figure living on the margins of society is all too familiar in Western culture. It's a stereotype that Roma people today often find quite harmful. The Goroba of the medieval Islamic world might have lived up to that image in some sense, except there would be marginal professions ranged from activities like begging to the highest level of performing arts or even offering forms of medical care. So whether as targets of fascination or revulsion, the Ghoraba were an integral part of urban life in Mamluk Cairo. I would say that Mamluk Cairo um, itself was a really rich place um, to understand um, the Ghoraba. Uh, for one, there is a shadow play, again, that, that just goes through all of the professions of the Ghoraba, looks at them as the, the beggars, the eye doctors, etc., and and has each character deliver a monologue about his or her trade. But also, it's an interesting place because we know exactly where they lived um, from the 13th century to maybe the 16th century. So there's a section, I don't know if th- these names are the same today, probably not, but if you go past the Nasri um, Canal, then there's a section, there's a gate called Beb el Luke. I know Beb is still in Cairo, but um, so in this area is where at this time in the 13th century was undeveloped. It was wild. There was also a trash dump there, but this is also the place where the Khuraba lived. And you have it in Makrizi's Khitat. Um, he, he states that the people who lived there were snake charmers and, and rope dancers, etc. Again, they had their own literary culture and their own traditions, but you also had a poet who lived there named Ibrahim Ibn al-Mi'mar. And he actually wrote very vulgar poetry. It's been recently edited by a team in Münster, led by Thomas Bauer. But he also states in his poetry that he himself is kharib. He integrates scene terms throughout all of his verses. Um, but he states very explicitly that it's very hard for people to know him because he lives in this section of the city that basically no one else wants to live in. Um, and people don't know him because he is of this of the Kharib tribe or Kharib group. Um, so there are ways to get to to, to access um, the Khuraba through the Kyrene cityscape. Their cemetery was also a little bit north of their settlement. I think the American University of Cairo is built over the Khuraba settlement actually. <laughs> so there's no place to actually, you know, um, but one day, someday, maybe we could do excavations and find out more. But um, in the sources, if you read anything about Bebe Luke, it's probably referring to the Kharib of the Mamluk era. The section of Mamluk Cairo where the Ghoraba once lived is now one of the most important areas of the city. There are major government offices there, elite schools, restaurants, and shops, and it's right next to Tahrir Square, which became the center of mass protests during the Egyptian Revolution of 2011. You might have heard Richardson mention the original campus of the American University in Cairo, which was placed in a 19th century palace complex built in what architectural historians call a neo-Mamluk style. So while there's evidence of Mamluk history to be found everywhere in Cairo, it's a selective history that doesn't usually include groups like the Ghoraba, even though they were an integral part of the medieval city, and whether through shadow theater, music, or other forms of entertainment, certainly made it more lively. The research of Christina Richardson hasn't been focused so much on those dimensions, but rather their language, often referred to as scene, as well as their literary production. Some of the earliest sources are poems, 
that incorporate the scene, they seem to be didactic poems addressed to an Arabic speaking audience. And in these poems, they're, it's, it's almost ethnographic. They're describing what they, the kinds of, the kinds of professions they lead, uh, some of their stratagems while they're, they're begging or, or, or fortune telling, etc. And in the course of these poems, they're also introducing uh, their scene dialect. One thing I should say, and I should have said at the beginning about the scene dialect, is that it is still spoken today. And we've had researchers from Everett Relson, um, recently retired from NYU, um, to various, mostly people who work on storytelling or performance who would meet speakers of scene and who have actually recorded their language um, as recently as, you know, the century. So it is, it is an ancient um, tradition that is still living. So it's not, this isn't also a dead tradition. Um, okay, so their poems, um, they also inspired a lot of poetry and in shadow plays, for instance, there's a, the earliest shadow play we have from the 13th century by Ibn Daniel. Um, one is called Aji Bakhrib, and it is also about um, the professions of, of the Huraba. Those sources are actually pretty well known, but I think it's their, their textual um, the printing that is actually not so well understood of all of it. Among their various professions, the Ghuraba seem to have dominated an early form of printing in the Islamic world. So they were printing in many languages, um, mostly what we find is Arabic, but they were also printing in Coptic script, in Syriac script, um, and Hebrew script. So Aramaic language and Hebrew language, but in, in, in Hebrew script. So that, that, that's pretty wild. And the sense that we also get from their poetry is that they were printing these various religious texts to market them to various um, sectarian customers. <laughs> so they, necess- they didn't necessarily believe every, you know, in every text they were printing, but they were marketing this to various peoples. So mostly religious texts. So these are the earliest, say, printed Qur'ans that, that we would have. And the earliest one, again, dating to the 10th century. I, I like. I have to admit ignorance. I didn't know that there was printing to that to that uh, you know that early in history. Yeah, it it predates Gutenberg. They were involved in basically the earliest form of printing in West Asia, and also that they created their own manuscript genres. So they have their own illustrated astrological manuscript genre that they called the Bulhan. Now, you might have encountered the idea that printing was invented in Europe during the 15th century, and that was certainly a big moment. But printing on a smaller scale was developed many centuries before that in China and Korea. It spread mainly among Buddhist printers. And during the Mongol period, that printing technology spread further. The main form of printing that the Ghuraba of cities like Cairo employed was woodblock printing. It entailed carving a text backwards onto a woodblock, applying ink, and then stamping it onto a piece of paper. At the earliest stages, they were carving wood blocks, and there are recipes for vegetal inks that they were using with with wood blocks. In a 13th century poem, not written by someone from the Ghuraba, but from someone who writes that he was asked to embed himself with the Ghuraba and then um, write a poem about their language and about their customs, he says that they were also printing with tin um, matrices. And I can say it seems to be a very localized production and that the the Khuraba maintained a monopoly over printing. Um, We know this because the printing vocabulary of the period is only in their tribal dialect. So um, you don't have, um, you just don't have this in in Arabic. 
um, to the same degree. So for instance, the word for the print block, we don't even have a, a classical Arabic word, I should say, mm -hmm. um, for, for print block, but you do have it in scene and it's, the word is tarsh. Um, we have a word for black printed amulet in scene and that word is sirmata, um, plural siramit. Um, you also have a word for, I mean, in scene, they even differentiate between the sizes of the amulets. So the long skinny amulet I tried to show you, I think that's that's called haikal. And then short, smaller rectangular ones are called shariha. So, I mean, so again, there's just a whole vocabulary in their dialect that, that doesn't transfer into, say, Persian, Turkish, or Arabic at this time. So th that's how you know how localized the production was. Producing wood blocks for printing took incredible skill and time. And so you had to be sure there would be lots of demand for the text you wanted to copy. And as a result, the Ghuraba weren't printing scholarly texts like the ones historians usually work with. Mostly, they were printing small amulets. Most of their, yes, their, their printed texts were sold as, as amulets, certainly. Um, and you find various, like if you read through them, you'll see that some of them are protecting against general illness, um, you know, or just safe conduct on a trip, etc. Um, a lot of amulets, of course, were just written out by hand. And you find from the actual sources from the Huraba is that they were trying to conceal the fact that these were printed. So some people had a sense that they were printing without a pin. That's, that's something like, that's a quote from one of the sources. Um, but they were trying to conceal the technology because again, they could mass produce these, sell them very cheaply. And, and, um, and people thought they were getting perhaps personalized personalized protections, right, from, from an astrologer or a guru. And I don't know if you can see my, my cursor or not, but, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's a decorative ornamental element, and you can see, of course, text. I mean, this, this isn't, you know, in the age of copiers and printers, maybe not so exciting, but you can see that, you know, they must have carved out, you know, that the text is in relief at the top, and this is a separate stamp from what's below, uh, this very, this minuscule text. I mean, each each line is about um, two set two, no, one centimeter high. Part of reconstructing it really has challenged mine, and I think it will challenge the field's ideas about literacy too, right? Um, about these bilingual or trilingual or multilingual, I should say, communities. Um, certainly, the Huraba I'm studying, of course, they did know scene, and they say explicitly that they have um, majelis or literary salons um, in which they recite poetry and scene in Arabic and in other languages. Um, so they were probably some of the more literate um, groups, or among the more literate groups of, of the period. Um, so that's been challenging because so much about uh, when you read about the history, the Romani history, for instance, um, even though I've complained that it's been um, artificially segregated, but you still find this idea that you can't recover it because these were illiterate peoples. And I think that's also shaped the way we've gone about looking at printing in the past. It's, it's clearly associated with these groups that are seen as carnivalesque or <laughs> dishonorable, disreputable. And so it's hard for us to assign literacy to these groups, but yeah, but their literate practices were, were, were pretty extraordinary. Certainly we need to rewrite the pre-modern um, history of printing. We've had a lot of studies on literacy and popular literacy and popular works, but we've, we go into it into the, into the genres that we're comfortable with. So epic tales or epic poems 
or a thousand and one nights, you know, something like that. And then, but when it goes off of that path, <laughs> we're kind of reluctant to really go deep into what people on the same margins of society were doing, you know, shadow play texts. So of course we have some pre-modern manuscripts, but we also have some 19th and 20th century manuscripts, the titles of which are in scene. And so they're kind of, you can overlook them because they don't mean much to someone who reads Arabic. Um, but what you see though, is perhaps Khuraba or speakers of scene were writing for each other, of course, over centuries, and in genres that we often don't think of as being good candidates for, for codification, maybe shadow plays, for instance. But if you look through these 19th and 20th century manuscripts, you see that, yeah, they're writing to each other in the margins, um, they're giving each other stage directions, they're making corrections. Um, but so it's, it's, you know, do you remember, I don't know how old you are, but do you remember FUBU? for us, by us. Okay, so it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, it's an in-group uh, literary phenomenon that that I'm really interested in, that they're not writing for majority Arabs, or if I, if I can use that neutrally, just, just everybody else. They're writing for themselves, not just with these amulets or with um, shadow play texts, but again, the astrological uh, manuscripts that are illustrated, they have fascinating things in there that only they are doing. For instance, they're representing the seasons anthropomorphically. This, is, this wasn't done before or afterwards in the um, Islamic world. And this is a 14th century um, specimen we have at the Bodleian that I'm talking about. But um, there's just so much that's in group and that has no reference to anybody else that I'm fascinated by. That they, in a lot of ways, just didn't care if you can read their stuff or understand it. And so that gives us a whole different world to look at. I love that. There's lots out there to read in terms of more conventional sources for history produced during the Mamluk period. To explore that world further, visit our webpage to check out an interview with Elias Mohanna about the encyclopedic writing of a Mamluk bureaucrat, as well as our interview with Ahmed Ragab about hospitals in the medieval Islamic world. However, I wanted to conclude our podcast with those notes on the Ghuraba because this is the side of Mamluk history that you won't find much about on Wikipedia or in your history textbook. Groups like the Ghuraba who belong to a broader Romani diaspora can be found in pretty much every country of the Middle East and North Africa up to this day. Yet most surveys of the history of the Islamic world will barely even mention their existence. In our next episode, we're turning to another region that is often left out of the discussion, but that absolutely cannot be ignored as a center of the pre-modern Islamic world. We'll be focusing on West Africa, which saw the rise of powerful Islamic empires from the 13th century onward. If the Mamluks of Cairo presided over the most powerful such empire during the early 14th century, the Mali Empire in West Africa would have been a good contender for second place. And as we'll discuss, West Africa emerged as a region with its own unique Islamic traditions well before the early modern period. I'm Chris Grayton. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and join us next time in what will be our penultimate installment of the making of the Islamic world. Take care, everybody. <laughs>